This podcast was produced and recorded by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church of Ocala, Florida. This is a collection of sermons and talks by our founding pastor, Ted Strawbridge. These recordings were salvaged from cassette tapes dating back to the 90s. We hope you enjoy. We pray, O Father, for the exalted risen Christ who has poured out His Spirit upon the church at Pentecost. Once again, fill us fresh and anew. pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I remind you of uh, the, the context in which this passage is found. You have to hang on to it. You have to understand. You have to get it. Because otherwise, the Christ hymn becomes something that's, that we steal out from the letter in which it was written. Go back up to chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We said a couple of weeks ago that the language that Paul uses here is very special. He says to the Philippians, politicize yourself, so to speak. He uses the word that our word politics comes from. He says, citizenize yourself. You remember that the city of Philippi was a rare city that was not geographically in Rome, and yet it had been given Roman status. And if you grew up in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. And you dressed like the Romans did. And you talked like the Romans did. And so Paul says, as he writes this letter to this church, you people act like that which you are a citizen of. He's sort of making a play on words here. It's so special to you to be a Roman citizen. Now as I'm writing to you in chains, I'm reminding you, act like a citizen of heaven. Act like a citizen of heaven. He goes on to say what that means. Then, if you're acting like a citizen of heaven, then I know that whether I come to you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing together as one man contending for the faith, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of you will be considering yourselves better than others. because you will all have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very morphe, remember that? Who being in the very essence, who being in the very form of God, nevertheless, in His pre-existent state, before He took on flesh, when He was in the exact form of God, He didn't consider that form something that He was going to cling to something to hang on to, something he was going to protect at all costs. Nor was it something that he was going to use to his own advantage. Christians, Easter is a great day because it's a celebration of power. And in the Christian church, we so little hear of power. Oh, life is so hard. The church is beaten about. That's true, it is. The church often suffers and struggles. But sometimes we get caught up in reveling, so to speak, in our weakness, in our vain attempts to try to get through this life, in our feebleness, and we end up a sort of broken mess of whining. 
You look up whining in the dictionary. You, if you ever looked up the word whine, you open up Webster's unabridged dictionary and you find the word whine and there's a picture of Cherokee Parks. <laughs> the guy's face just looks like whining. I mean, he, he will have to be the next Bill Lambeer in the NBA. He may be a great guy. I don't know him at all. But his haircut and his style is always nah. Not enough is for Cherokee Parks. But when we come to Easter and we come to this day, it's like God's Spirit reaches in in the midst of that struggle and grabs us out and says, 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul writing in chains in Rome, close to his death, close to his death, and he writes to Timothy. Timothy was a faithful son. You remember we've been through this a couple of times. Paul was in Antioch and he left to go and plant some churches. And on his first missionary journey, he planted a church in, in Galatia. And he ran into a guy, his name was Timothy, on a second missionary journey. Timothy was perhaps converted on his first missionary journey. He had been trained up in the gospel, in the Old Testament, knowledge of the scripture by his mom and his grandmother. On his second missionary journey, when Paul passes through Galatia again, he picks up Timothy and takes him with him. Timothy is his son in the faith. And now Paul, much, much later on in his life, he's already been dragged to Rome, he's in chains, he knows that he's close to death, and he's writing back to Timothy. What does he tell him? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. What is he saying? Timothy, remember the power and the resurrection. Last week we were in the first part of this Christ hymn. Very complicated, lots of issues that we have to deal with and continue to have to deal with. And I said, told you about the books and books and books that you can read. But Paul becomes very clear when he moves to the second half. Verse 9, even in the English you can tell there's a huge break. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll give you an outline. It's not a complicated outline. I hope it's an attempt for you to see how you can read the Scriptures too and just get some very simple things out of it. When Paul wrote this passage, to the Philippian church. What was he trying to get them to see? When we read through this passage, what are three things that we can know? I just picked three that happened to fit well by the time I got through the passage. But you can do that in any scripture passage, any verse that you read. What is it that the writer wants me to know? What are the facts that I can recognize here? How, how should those facts make me feel? And, and what, is this, what does this passage call me to do? So we come to this passage this morning and just want to ask those three simple questions. What can I know? When we celebrate Easter Sunday morning and we celebrate the resurrection, what are the facts that we can know? Well, we see very clearly in the text that these three things, that God has exalted Jesus. God has exalted Jesus. God has graciously given Him a name that is above every name. Those are two facts that we see that have, whether we know or understand what was going on. Look, when, when, the, when the women came to the tomb, 
They found an empty tomb. Duh. Okay? They could recognize no one is here. But they did not have the ability to understand what that meant. And an angel is there. And an angel communicates to them divine, special revelation. Yes, you can recognize no one is in the tomb. Now let me tell you what it means. He's risen. He's not here. He's come back to life. That's the power of God that the angel is declaring to the women. What are the facts that we see here? When Jesus was raised from the dead, we wouldn't know what happened to him unless God told us. But here in this scripture, God tells us three things, facts that we can know and hang on to. One, when Jesus was raised from the dead, therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Two things, God raised him up and God gave him the name that is above every other name. Why? Why? So that the name of Jesus, every single person would bow and give praise to the glory of God the Father. When you read through these passages, very simply, you see these three things. This text tells us that when Jesus, who had been humiliated, was dead and buried because of his obedience. See, that's what the therefore is therefore to tell you. In the first part, last week, we looked at the humiliation of Christ. You know, it was humiliating for him simply to take on flesh. It was absolutely humiliating for he who was the pre-existent God, the second person of the Trinity, to, to come down and be stuck under the law. But this passage tells us because Jesus didn't cling to his godness but willingly humbled himself and gave himself up for us not only to die but that death even on a cross because, because he did that then God because Jesus did that then God raised him up and gave him the name Kyrios or Lord translation in Greek of the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. Then God gave him the name Kyrios, Lord, and exalted him to the highest place so that he would rule over all things. Let me read to you again from Ephesians chapter 1 and I'll begin with verse 19. That power, uh, let me back up a little bit. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now this is where we come to the part that's relevant for us. That power is like the mighty working of his strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. It's important that Paul declares to us here what happened to Jesus Christ when he was risen. 
The fact is, when God raised him from the dead, he gave him the name Kyrios and exalted him to be Lord over all things. Why does Paul write to Timothy and say, Brother, son in the faith, precious friend of mine. Why does Paul tell him, remember the resurrection? Because in this life we so tempted, are so tempted and struggle with sin so much and it beats us about and slaps us one to one side and down the other. Not just sin, but the trials of life, of economics, of finance, of family, of homes, of schools. And in the midst of all that, we are tempted to remember only the humiliation of Christ and forget His exaltation. Psalm 110 says that God called Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, come and sit here until I make all your enemies a footstool. Ephesians 1.22 says that when Jesus was risen, God made him Lord over every name and every title and everything that can be given. The church is beaten up. The church is battered. And we're tempted to forget and to give in and to suck up under the power of resurrected Jesus. I'll pick on Robert because he's been up here already and so those of you who are guests know who he is. But suppose we started a conversation and, and we started talking about Robert and, and I started talking to this group over here and telling you things about him even while he's sitting there. And we sort of had this conversation going about him and about doctrinus and about orthopedics and all that, you know, junk that he does is so important. Wouldn't he not want to say, hey, hey, whoa, I'm right here. Don't talk about me like I'm not here. In the same way, we as Christians oftentimes talk about Jesus and the struggle and the death on the cross. And I think Jesus wants to look down and say, Hey! Yo! I'm here! I'm alive! Why? Because he gutted it out? Because he had strength of, an o of his own? No, Jesus absolutely gave up every bit of strength that he had. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But Philippians tells us, Paul tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave it all up and what happened the action changes and it focuses now very clearly then God did something Jesus gave it all up then God reached down and God exalted him and God brought him up and he established him of the highest place Christian we are so quick to want to think that we are without power we are without hope what a great day. Again, it's so funny in the providence of the Lord how often in the midst of our worship service, providentially, He works out a demonstration of what I think is the important part of the passage. And if we had hours, I could go on about the weaknesses of my friend John and how unfit for service he is. We're that close. We're those kind of brothers. When I get to heaven... And, and I come to my mansion and all my family's kind of on one side of the street and we're all there together in all our mansions. On the other side, 
It will be my house, and so I can be with all my family. And on one side will be Daryl Boutwell's house, and the other side will be John's. We're that kind of close. And I can tell you how futile it is to send anybody from Augusta to Kenya. Okay? Were it not for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, I want you to know that the gospel is going out around the world and bearing much fruit. Christian, hear the facts. The fact is, Jesus took on complete humiliation for our sakes, and then God exalted him and lifted him up, so to speak, dusted him off and stamped on him, curious. Now, Lord of everything. Christian Jesus invites you to come. Come and rule with me, reign with me in your homes, in your families in your citizenship, reign in my power through the working of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 to 19, he's talking about, see, there were people who believed that nobody was resurrected. They, they thought that everybody only died and that was the end. Well, why did they think that? They weren't dumb. It's just that everybody they had ever known had died and that was it. It was the end. We call that smart when you're able to recognize that a consistent thing happens of repeatable events. That's what all of science is built on. You know, hypothesis and testing, and if you can repeat the event over and over and over, if it's a repeatable event and we can begin to predict what's going to happen next, we call those people smart. And so Paul writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 15, and he says, it basically in a sense, look, we understand. These people think that there's death and then there's no resurrection. Why is that? Because it's a repeatable event. Everybody they've ever known before has died. And that was it. The credits came up. The movie was over. Except for this one. And he proves for us that there is a resurrection. Then Paul says... For if the dead are not raised, then, of course, Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. I've given you these three points very simply. What can we know? How should we feel? What can we do? First of all, what can we know? God exalted Jesus. Whether we see it or not, we understand that the fact is God has exalted Jesus and given the name above every name. How should we feel? Paul says we should feel this way. If there is no resurrection, then we are the most pitied of all men. If our only hope for good from Jesus is what we get out of him in this life, then it's a total bust. And we are to be pitied more than every other man on the earth. If we don't have the resurrection, then we are to feel total despair. Total despair. Why does Paul write this passage to the church at Philippi? Not only because he wants them to get the facts of what they can know, but because he wants them to feel. 
He calls them to humbly serve each other, to not consider themselves better than the others. What is the hope and confidence that you have from which to give yourself to others? Paul wants you to feel the assurance of that forgiveness. He wants you to know the certainty. You see, Christ... i got to back up. This is so good. Every once in a while, I read one of those books, and, and this week, oh, I did some rabbit trails, and I went through all kinds of stuff. And then as I'm talking, one of the lines comes to me and just kind of hits me. When we preach this morning, this is not really an evangelistic message because the Christ hymn calls us to imitate Jesus. And it says that we're supposed to imitate Him in His humiliation. And it says that because Jesus obeyed and He was humiliated, then God rewarded Him. And I can't say to the non-Christian, act this way, and if you do this and so, then God will reward you. You see, the idea of merit is nowhere in conversion for the non-Christian. I cannot say to you, Christian, act this way, and then if you're really goody-goody, then God will give you some good things. I have to say to the non-Christian, man, there is no hope for you apart from Jesus Christ. You can't do anything. Fall down on your face and beg Him to do something for you. You can't do anything. But that's not what this says. This hymn is a call for us to imitate Christ. What does Paul want the Philippian church? Remember how they were suffering? You remember how they were beaten about? You remember that they sent Epaphroditus to Paul because of the dissension that had begun among the churches? And they're concerned and they send him to say, Paul, would you come and help us? Paul, we know if you were here, things would be straightened out. Paul writes this passage not to the non-believer, but to the believer to remind him that we are in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ, the reward for His obedience, is not a pattern for the non-Christian. The non-Christian can't do anything of his own accord. It is a pattern for the believer. Paul writes this passage to the believer and says, this is sanctification. Take you who know the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ, you who are united to Him, see the end of chapter 1, you who have fellowship with Him in the power of the Holy Spirit, you obey, and the pattern for you will be like the pattern for Christ. When you obey, God will also highly exalt you and reward you. And so we come back to the same point again. What does Paul want us to know? He wants us to know the exaltation of Christ. How does he want us to feel? Christian, I believe from this passage that what Paul wants you to feel is great hope that your obedience and your faithfulness and your striving, your accomplishment, your work will one day be rewarded. Just like Jesus, God will lift you up. The proud He will cast down, but the humble God will exalt. Again, How does Paul want us to feel? I'm quoting Philippians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. I want to know Christ and the what? 
Find your bulletin insert with me and say it with me, okay? I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Why is Paul saying this? Why is he writing this to these people? Because he wants them to feel the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not because it only works for Jesus, but because it works for us too. Christian, are you struggling this week? Was this a tough week for you? How did you do in your battle with sin? How much progress did you make? Did you have big victories this week? Did you significantly change the world for Jesus this week? Oh, I suspect that just like every other week, it was a week of hard-fought, costly, slow, small gains, step by step. Paul writes this passage to the church at Philippi because he wants them to remember the power of the resurrection. Because in our obedience there is a hope for God's reward. What can you do? <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, just as you've been continuing on, so now continue on, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, what does Paul want us to do? What does he write back to the Philippian church? Hmm. Gentlemen, I'm sorry I have to include ladies because sometimes there are things you just want to say. Man, stand up. You know? Man, this is your place. Paul writes back and he says, work it out. Work out. Cling to your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because maybe you'll be good enough this week and maybe this week will go a little better? No, because you have the confidence that God is going to do a work in you. What assurance do you have? Because of your past history, because you got a good family name, because you dress right? No, because God did it in Jesus. He's the first fruits for us. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the one who led captivity captive and who brings us along in His train. You know what a train is? Samuel, I could ask you if I wanted to embarrass you. Bo, you know what a train is? It's not the woo-woo thing. It's the thing that gets dirty behind the lady when she's getting married, you know, that long white stuff. Okay? The scripture said that Jesus took captivity captive and he brings us along in his train. Paul writes to the church and he says, man, I want you to know the exaltation of Christ because I want you to feel the confidence that one day, just like God raised you up, even though today, Monday morning when you wake up, you're going to suffer and it's going to be a trial. Nevertheless, God is going to lift you up. What can you do about it? Hang on. Hang on. If I didn't have as much pride, I'd try to do a, a uh, the clerk. Okay? Did you watch the game? I won't ask that question. Surely you watch the game. It's an assumption you watch the game. Andrew Clark, he does it better than anybody. Ah! You know? He's so ugly. He, um, and it's so personal for me. When My little brother played basketball for a year and a half at the University of Florida, and he never broke through and was able to give it a good Andrew DeClerc. He was always beaten up by the coach and the system and the, the crud that goes on in college athletics. And I imagine Andrew DeClerc probably is too. But man, when he breaks through, I think that's what Paul's saying here. Christians, really, let them have it. Unload on that world out there. Unload on your own sin. Claim the exaltation of Christ. 
Um, I'll share with you something that I haven't gotten permission to, but you know me, that's not new. Um, when I saw Bob Marin this week, uh, you know he has uh, arthritis in his neck and, and he's had chronic headaches. They went away after his heart operation, but he's got a lot of other physical pains too. They, they found cancer inside him and they went in and they took out the tumor. And he laid there on his bed and he said, I, you know, talked to him and he said, I absolutely am in pain from the tips of my toes to the top of my head. That was okay, I could understand that part. But somewhere along the way, he said, but it's okay because, you know, I, I deserve it. There, there are good reasons in my life for God to be upset with me. And that's where I wanted to jump in and say, no, I know. It was partly, it's just, you know, the, the battle that we have with our bodies. And when we're in pain, it's hard for us to hang on to that which we know and believe. But I wanted to jump in there and say, no, Bob, gee, God is not unhappy with you. Now, now, you know in your own life, sometimes God does punish us. But that's not it in Bob's case. That's not it. And if he were a pool, I wanted to dive in and swim around and say, no, God, Bob, God is not unhappy with you. And Christian, I think that's what Paul is writing to the church. Some of you will be tempted to say, whoa, this hurts. And, and since it hurts, God must be upset with me. And to you, I would come to this passage and give you what Paul gave to the Philippians. Was God unhappy with Jesus when Jesus did not cling to God's power but made himself nothing and suffered? Was God unhappy with Jesus then? Say no. No. God was not unhappy with Jesus when he was humiliated and suffered and hurt. In fact... We see from this passage that God was tremendously pleased with Jesus. Some of you are going through some hard times, and you're going to be tempted to want to say, mm, I wish I knew what I was doing wrong, because I sure do it right, because I don't like it. God's not happy with me. And I want to say, Christian, you're missing something here. God allowed Jesus to suffer and in the midst of his suffering he was not at all unhappy with him in fact it was because Jesus went through the suffering that God said now I'm going to lift you up so what does Paul say to the Philippians and to us are you suffering do you struggle God is not unhappy with you God wants through that suffering to take you by your little childlike hand and lift you up. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before this passage, we pray that you would teach it and speak to our hearts. Father, there's so much here that we've just skimmed the surface. We've only got a few short minutes. Father, all week long, would you build in us a commitment to the Scripture to find very simply, like a child, the things that we can know and the things that you want us to feel and how we are to respond. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my present, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Father, we claim this promise from the Scripture. We ask you to work in us this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.